Good evening. The reading is taken from Luke uh, chapter 20, verses 41 to 47. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. That second bit of that passage is such a strong warning against hypocrisy. Jesus gunning for the teachers of the law at the time. But there's a danger for all of us that we can sing about our love for the Lord on a Sunday, but our lives not match up to that in the week. So let's pray that Jesus would come and speak to us, that we would be people of real integrity whose lives match uh, what we sing. Lord Jesus, we worship you, we believe in you, we trust in you, we love to trust in you better and we're sorry for ways in which our lives fall short of what we sing or say with our lips here on a Sunday. We pray, send your spirit tonight on each one of us as we look at this wonderful passage about your lordship and help us to Know what that will mean in our lives. Give us faith to trust you more, to see you more clearly, and grace to live with you as Lord. So speak to us, we pray. Take what I've prepared, speak through your scriptures, and give grace to each of us to go the next step in our walk with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so as Eleanor said, sorry I'm not Andy. Uh, I'd given this sermon to Andy to preach, but he's in hospital. It looked like he wasn't coming out. Uh, so I prepared a sermon for this morning. hasn't got any better this afternoon, actually. I've snoozed a bit this afternoon. Um, the danger with not long to prepare. Some people think, great, short sermon. Actually, the opposite tends to happen, that you can have a long sermon. Churchill was asked how long it took to prepare a talk. He said it for the House of Commons. He said, if it's a 10-minute talk, I need an hour. If it's a two-minute talk, I need two hours. If it's an hour's talk, I'm ready now, he said. And uh, there is a danger of it being too long. So normally I try and come up with three points. Uh, I've got loads of points tonight. There are seven headings, but there's loads. Uh, but there's one main point, and we will finish by eight, so don't worry. It's, we're, still, we're still on time. Uh, but here we are. We're carrying on going through Luke's gospel. For the last two weeks, we've seen growing conflict and controversy between Jesus and the authorities. Uh, for those who are new to us, we're just traveling the whole way through Luke's gospel. We've been doing this for over a year now, and uh, we're going to get to Easter at Easter time this year. Uh, Jesus came into Jerusalem, 
the week before he died, he was teaching every day in the temple courts. Uh, we saw a couple of weeks ago in the morning the leaders saying, by what authority do you do this? And he said, well, I'll ask you a question. If you answer mine, I'll answer yours. And he said, by what authority did John the Baptist speak? Was he from God or from man? And the leaders say, well, if we say from God, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? And if we say he was only human, the people will lynch us because they think it was God. So they said, well, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, I'm not going to tell you either. So I, when I first read that as a teenager, I loved that. Jesus is smart enough just to step out of controversy if he needed to. He then told the parable of the tenants, which made it, they were very clear he was speaking against them. And they tried to get him all the more. So last week, we saw the story in the morning of Jesus with paying taxes to Caesar, where the authorities come pretending to be honest. Teacher, we know you only care about God. You don't care what anybody thinks of you. Should we pay the tax to Caesar or not? And uh, Jesus knew that if he said, yes, you should pay the tax to Caesar, the people would write him off. And if he said, no, you shouldn't pay the tax to Caesar, the authorities would imprison him. Uh, but again, Jesus is so smart. He just says, show me a coin. Whose head's on that coin? Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God's what's God. Uh, and then there was a question about marriage at the resurrection we looked at last week. And Jesus answered that really well. Uh, and we finished last week at verses 39 and 40 of chapter 20, where we read this. Uh, some of the teachers, the Lord responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared ask him any more questions. But Jesus says, well, let, since no one's asking me questions, let me ask you a question. And he asked the teachers of the law the question we heard tonight. Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And uh, in Matthew's version of this story, Matthew 22, 45 to 46, uh, we read, no one could say a word in reply. <clears throat> From that day on, no one dared to ask him more questions. I think they'd realized that he was well capable of making them look silly uh, or exposing their, their hypocrisy. And Jesus goes on teaching in the temple courts uh, as, as the conflict rises towards the cross. Now, the Sadducees and authorities did not know the answer to this question. David calls the Messiah his Lord but the Messiah is the son of David. How can his son be his Lord? We know the answer, of course. It's there in the Christmas story every year. Jesus is born a descendant of David, the son of David, but he is the son of God who's come to this earth to be born. He is the Lord, and he is David's son. <clears throat> we know that answer very well, so I'm not going to explain that bit anymore. What I do want to do is take this verse from the psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And look at some of the ways the New Testament uses this verse about the Lordship of Jesus. There are at least 20 places where this is either quoted directly or clearly alluded to. I'm not going to do all 20, don't worry. I've just got seven uh, tonight. <clears throat> but you could look them all up. And it's a key text, really, of understanding what the New Testament writers, how they understood Jesus to be the Lord of Lords. So here's the first one. And the first one is quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost in his great sermon in Acts 2. On Pentecost, we normally read the first bit of it, 
We don't read the whole thing. We often read the last bit of it, and we miss this middle bit. Uh, So let me read it to you. This is Acts 2 from verse 29. Peter says, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. We could have pointed them to it. It's just over there. Uh, But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of the Father, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah. So the key two verses of the, in, in there, just before, David, uh, before Peter quotes the psalm, are verses 32 and 33 of Acts 2. God has raised this Jesus to life. We're witnesses of it. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father, picking up that phrase from Psalm 110. He's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. Well, we celebrate at Pentecost that the Spirit is poured out, but Jesus is continuing to pour out his Holy Spirit on you and on me. You can be as full of the Holy Spirit as you want to be. If you open yourselves just a little bit, that's how much Holy Spirit God can get into you. If you open yourself wide, God can fill you with his Spirit. And we cannot lead a life that is worthy of God in our own strength. You can try, but you'll burn out and get exhausted. We need God's Spirit to do that. We cannot do all the mission God has for us. We cannot love the people who are so hard to love or be patient with the people who are so trying without God's Spirit helping us. We need God's Holy Spirit. I'm in danger of making this point too long, so I'll stop there. Jesus is ascended, he's pouring out the Spirit. That was point one. Point two, uh, this is quoted by St. Paul to the Ephesians, talking about just how powerful Jesus is and how much he can do more than we expect. So again, I'll read you a longish chunk. We'll zoom in on the key bit. This is Ephesians 1, verses 18 to 23, and it's a cracking prayer. If you don't know what to pray for me or for the rest of the church, pray this prayer. It's a great prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. You've got the seating at the right hand bit there. Uh, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. And God has placed all things under his feet, second bit of our verse, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So key verses in the middle of that for our purpose tonight, verse 19 and 20. God's incomparably, or should it be incomparably, any, any English specialist correct me afterwards, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm. 
I don't know if you feel that on a Monday morning, when you get up tomorrow morning, when you just feel, I'm so full of the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. That's not how my Monday morning normally goes. But the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and me through God's Holy Spirit. That is extraordinary. The same power is available for our work of living out our Christian life, of telling others about Jesus. And this is one of the big themes in Ephesians, that God's power is far greater than any power of the evil one. But I love these verses <coughs> at the end of chapter 3 of Ephesians, the same theme, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him, to God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. In other words, God can do far more than all you can ask or far more than all you can even think of asking. According to his power that is a work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is the God for whom nothing is impossible. All those stories, the whole way through scripture. Jesus is risen and that power that raised him from the dead is available. Now when he walked this earth, Jesus showed that he was the Lord over creation. He stilled the storm, he walked on water, he turned water into wine. He was the Lord over sickness, he healed the blind, he healed lepers, he healed the sick. He was the Lord over demons, he cast them out and set people free from the occult. He's the Lord over death, he raised people from the dead and he was raised from the dead. Nothing is impossible for him. One of my frustrations with the Lord is this. He could do anything. I bring before him a really challenging situation and he chooses to pour his power into my life to, make me, to help me to cope with it rather than to change the situation. I really wish he'd change the situation and sometimes he does, but often he just gives us the strength to cope with it. That's how he chooses to do it. Remember, God's job is making us more like Jesus. And if it's all fixed and plain sailing, we'll probably stop praying. So actually, he gives us the strength to hang in there and keep trusting, and we become more like Jesus. I'm in danger of preaching another sermon. Point three, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He has finished the first part of what he came to do. He came to reveal the love of God and die on the cross for our sins, and he's done that. Uh, when I go home, having preached and chatted to some of you, and even maybe encouraged people to set up chairs for tiddlies afterwards, that sort of thing that happens on a Sunday evening. I shall go home and I shall sit down. I will have finished my work for the day and I sit down. I shall probably watch Death in Paradise, which has started at nine o'clock. If I'm still here at seven minutes to nine, I shall walk out. I know you can pause live TV, it's just that we don't, isn't it? And that, anyway, the point is when you finished what you're doing, you sit down. And that image of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is here in the Scriptures. Here, for example, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Do you like that? Just an aside in the point he's making. It's a bit like Genesis 1, he also made the stars. Actually, he also made everything. And if you've seen those amazing pictures that are coming from the new telescope, isn't it extraordinary? Jesus made that. 
light years, millions of light years away. Yeah, Jesus made that a long time ago. Anyway, this is an aside. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now here we come. After he had provided purification for sins, when he died on the cross for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. It's the same verse we're picking up. Jesus had finished dealing with our sins in the sense that he had paid the price for it. When he died, he cried out just before he died, it is finished. Uh, the Greek word recorded in the Gospels is tetelestai. It means paid. It used to be written or stamped on bills when they'd been paid. It's not I am finished. It was it is finished. It's done. He'd paid the price for all sin. All my sin all your sin. And that means that nothing you've done is too big to be forgiven. All of us need forgiveness, but nobody is beyond forgiveness if they come in repentance to Jesus. He paid the price for it. It is finished. And a lot of the book of Hebrews goes into how Jesus has done what all the normal priests with their sacrifices couldn't do. So, for example, Hebrews 10, 11 to 13, we get this. Day after day, every priest stands and performs the same religious duties. Again and again offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The Old Testament sacrifices point to the need for forgiveness, but they couldn't actually do it. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered once for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his, you know the word, footstool. It's the same verse that comes. He has finished paying the price for sin. If you are not sure that you are forgiven, please come and chat and pray afterwards. We're meant to know. We're not meant to live with a deep sense of guilt. I find some Christians are guilt, feel guilty for things they shouldn't feel guilty about. Uh, and they don't feel guilty for things they should feel guilty about. But... When we've done stuff wrong, we're meant to know we're forgiven. We confess it, we bring it to the Lord. If you're struggling with it, it's helpful to talk with someone and pray about that. Please do. Uh, point four, because we've got to keep going. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he is now praying for us. This is Romans 8:34. This is a wonderful thought. When you get up tomorrow morning, please remember Jesus is praying for you. He's wanting to fill you afresh with his Holy Spirit and equip you for whatever tomorrow faces. And he's praying for you. Paul writes this, Romans 8, 34. Who then is going to condemn you? Nobody. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God. That's the illusion, sitting at the right hand of God. And he's interceding for us. He's praying for us. And that same thought you get in Hebrews, talking about Jesus' priestly ministry for us. So I read these verses again, these verses, Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. Same context as last time. There have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus can save you completely. Now, we all know we struggle with different bits of sin, 
different bits of temptation, things that get a grip in us. We are forgiven, and in this life, God, by his Holy Spirit, through Jesus, helps us to be free from the grip of sin on us until one day when he returns or we die and we are with him in glory, we'll be set free from even the presence of sin. There'll be no more death or sickness. But this work of being set free from the effect of sin in us, it's called sanctification. Jesus is praying for us, pouring out his spirit, doing all he needs to do. He just looks for you to cooperate with him in that. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, That's another sermon. Point five, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, so we need to look to him and not just have our heads down and forget about that. Colossians 3, 1 to 4, Paul writes this. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, guess what? Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Let's stop. How often we just look down at everything around us, all the jobs to do, the to-do list, the emails, the things that need mending, the car needs MOTing, the to-do list, all the things shouting at us, and we don't look up. And Paul says, look up to Jesus. Remember, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Fix your heart there and your mind there. You get the same idea in Hebrews 12 after this long letter talking about Jesus' priestly ministry interceding for us. He writes this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Just a little aside here again. Uh, When we were doing this redevelopment years ago, as well as getting people to give lots of money and people went without changing cars and without kitchens and without holidays, amazing sacrifice from the church then, we did some fun things. We put 40 of us uh, ran in the Regency Run with St. Paul's T-shirts. We had bright orange T-shirts, thanks to Kate's husband, Pete. And he had written on this, run the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Uh, we needed, it was helpful just running a 10k race for those of us who weren't very fit to look ahead and fix our eyes on another orange shirt coming or whatever it was. But in this race of life, we run this race fixing our eyes on Jesus to look up to him. He's the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then he did what? He sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so you will not grow weary and lose heart. Are you ever tempted to grow weary and lose heart in your Christian life? Of course you are. We all are. We get exhausted. We get tired. And the writer of the Hebrews tells us, when you're tempted to do that, look up to Jesus. Remember the cross Remember the resurrection. Remember he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, praying for you, pouring out his spirit. So look up so you won't grow weary and lose heart. Point six. This Jesus, we're doing well. This Jesus, who has risen, is exalted, is at the right hand of the Father, is praying for you, is pouring out his spirit. He's given us a job to do. It's called, we get it in the Great Commission. He commissioned his church to do a job until he comes again. You get it in Matthew 28, and I'm going to read verses 18 to 20. 
just before Jesus ascended. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you to the end of the very end of the age. We have a job to do. It's to help other people become disciples of Jesus. Now, we will never do that job if we are not ourselves disciples of Jesus. It's not teach everybody to come and sit in church for an hour and a half a week. It's teaching us to become wholehearted disciples of Jesus. That's what we're made to be. God's made us in his image. You will only ever be fully who God's made you to be with Jesus as your Lord, filled by his Holy Spirit. And there is a tremendous freedom when that comes. And in this church, we've been given this big vision for the next 10 years of together with others in other churches, God's people all in the area, to give everybody in this area a meaningful opportunity to respond to the good news of Jesus. We've said by Easter 2033, that is nine and a bit years away, that by our calendar, Jesus rose from the dead at Easter 33. So 2033 will be 2,000 years since the resurrection of Jesus by our calendar. And together with Christians all around the world, we're sort of heading for that date. There's at least 100,000 people in this area, more if the area goes wider. How on earth is that going to happen? Well, nothing is impossible for God. But it will not happen by us putting on lots of events and getting exhausted. It will happen as each of us is filled with the Spirit of God as a wholehearted disciple of Jesus, and then in all our day-to-day -day interactions, at home, at work, at school, at university, in clubs and with groups of friends, you just sometimes find yourselves in conversations which are God conversations. You sometimes get a nudge to talk to that person. As the conversation goes, you find Jesus is steering it. At least you do if you're a disciple full of his spirit looking to live for him. And this will only happen if that's what we're doing. So as you pray, pray, well, Lord, where do you want me to get involved? Do you want me to get involved with one of these mission partners locally, with one more globally? Uh, or Eleanor shared about our learning community. Do you feel, well, I'm really passionate about this thing, and nobody seems to be doing anything for this group of people. Maybe God is calling you with two or three others to start something for them. And that's what Eleanor's learning community with Myriad that starts soon is about. If that's you and you just feel a stirring to start something new and you can't quite work out what it is, please talk to Eleanor, come to that taster morning, or if you can't do it, ask her so the actual learning community starts in April. Point seven, we're doing well, and we've got ages to go till eight o'clock. Uh, point seven, one, Jesus at the moment is sitting at the right hand of the Father, but one day every knee will bow. At the moment, just some. Around about a third of the planet, over two and a quarter billion, two and a half billion, name the name of Jesus. Only God knows how many of those have bowed their knee to him as Lord. But one day, every knee will bow. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, sat at the right hand of the Father, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The point of all these passages is that Jesus is Lord. 2,000 years ago, in the Roman Empire, Caesar was Lord. And the Christians said, no, we will not bow to Caesar as Lord. Jesus is Lord. Who would have thought 2,000 years ago that these often poor followers of this penniless preacher from Galilee would take over the world? Who could think that the might of Caesar would collapse? And if you've ever been to Rome, you can see the ancient ruins of Rome. I don't know what you make of the glitz of the Vatican, but it's pretty clear that the followers of Jesus uh, overtook the might of Rome. And as John Ortberg puts it, and I love this, we call our children after Jesus' disciples, Matthew, Peter, or his mother, Mary. And we call our dogs Caesar and Nero and Brutus and that sort of thing. I love that. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. I'll tell you some other things that are not Lord. Public opinion is not Lord. But so often we bow to that rather than the word of God of Jesus. Your career is not Lord, or it shouldn't be. Jesus is Lord. If he calls you for promotion, take it. If you're offered it and Jesus calls you not to take it, don't take it. Jesus is Lord. What do we do with our lives? We need to submit to him. The two idols in my life are the church, which is not the Lord, and my family, which is not the Lord. And if I put them before God, things just go a little bit wrong. Jesus is Lord. And when we get him right, everything falls into place. Do you know the story of Copernicus? Of course you do. Uh, years ago, when people thought that everything revolved around the earth, they tried to make sense of the movement of the planets and the sun. It just didn't make sense. And then Copernicus suggests that the sun is at the center of the solar system. And with that theory, the movement of the planets made perfect sense. Only Jesus is the Lord. And when he's in the right place, life begins to assume its the right proportions. Anything else in the center of your life is an idol, and it cannot deliver what only God can deliver. We had a picture as we were praying before the service. Someone had a picture of a sort of Warwickshire bear, a bear chained up to a, a staff, possibly with a, something bound around its head. It was having to dance, but dance to someone else's tune. And we wondered if there's someone here, maybe more than one, who's really dancing to the tune of someone who is not the Lord. That's not how we're designed to be. We're designed to be set free to live with Jesus as Lord. I had a lovely email this morning from someone who used to be part of this church, a young man of 30, uh, who had wrestled with the Christian faith for a long time. And two weeks ago, uh, I had an email from him saying he'd bowed the knee to Jesus as Lord and met Jesus. And he sent me another email today which said, every day since then has been the best day of my life. It was just wonderful. It's like a honeymoon period. But how wonderful. The point is, God loves you more than anybody else. 
Uh, Jesus died for you. He's pouring out his spirit. He's interceding for you. And what we're called to do is to bow our knee to him as Lord. Uh, I will stop talking there. I wonder if the band would come back. Would you stand and let's pray? Let's just be still for a moment. We're told both to bow our knee and to look up to Jesus as Lord. Hard to do both those things at the same time. But inwardly, Lord, we bow our knees before you. And we look up to you. You may even want to close your eyes and look up physically just to express that. We praise you that you are seated at the right hand of the Father. Interceding for us. Pouring out your Holy Spirit on us. That you reign. We don't understand why you allow so much to go wrong. But we know that one day you will return and all will be made new. And we pray, come by your Holy Spirit, send your Spirit on us and fill us afresh tonight. Just be still. There may be particular things God puts in your mind or that you, questions you want to ask him. Come Holy Spirit and minister to your people. any of you who are exploring the Christian faith, just wondering whether this is true, let me invite you again to join our Alpha course on Tuesday. You may just want to say, well, Lord, God, is that something I should do? Is there another way? You may want to say, Lord, if this is true, please help me know. I want to know. So we were praying before the service. There was another verse of scripture from 1 Corinthians about if you're you're knighted with the Lord, you're one with him. When we bow the knee to Jesus as our Lord, we are united with him. He promises to be with you as you go home tonight, as you go to work tomorrow, in all the things you're looking forward to, in all the things you're not looking forward to. Lord, fill us with your spirit. And we pray you would so work among your people in this church, in this 150th year, and in the churches around us, that hundreds, thousands of those who sing your praise on a Sunday would live with you as Lord, Monday to Saturday, and that you would shine through us, and that people would notice, and that over these next 10 years, everybody in this area would have a meaningful chance to bow their knee to you as Lord. So pour out your spirit even more as we sing your great praise. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.